Hi guys, my name's Jason and this is the UK Money Podcast. It's been an interesting couple of months. The world is finally, well the UK at least, um, seems to be finally starting to get back to normal a little bit. Um, we've had some success, not quite the success we would have liked in the Euros. I don't know, the, the weather's warming up a bit. Uh, it's just starting to feel like we're getting back to, to a bit of normality. So hopefully that continues. But um, that's not what you're here to talk about. You're not here to talk about the Euros. This is not a football cut. Fo- football podcast or a soccer podcast as I would call it from Australia and we're here to talk about money. So um, I'm a financial planner. If you've not listened to this uh, podcast before, um, I obviously talk about money. But whilst I am a financial planner, I do give financial advice to clients every single day. Um, It's important to note that on this podcast, I don't provide financial advice. Um, I answer questions from readers. I look at what's happening at readers, listeners. Um, I look at what's been happening in the news um, and basically just try to provide some information that can hopefully help you out with your own financial situation, but it shouldn't be considered financial advice. On today's episode of the podcast, I've had a couple of different questions come through uh, from listeners. The first one is from uh, Noel. Uh, he's left me a voice message, which you can do directly in your podcast app. Um, you can just hit that record button, hit leave a voice message, um, and then I can play it on the podcast. I love that. I think it's the best way to ask me a question um, if you want to get it answered on the show. So um, yeah, Noel has sent through a question. He's in a, a really fortunate position in that he has Um, He's basically at his lifetime allowance for his pension. So essentially, if you're not sure what that means, he's got a nice big chunk in his pension, which means if if he starts to put more money in, he will end up paying kind of penalty tax, basically. So he's asking what his options are outside of that. Um, Even if you're nowhere near your pension allowance, I think that's a good uh, conversation to have around some of the other tax effective options that you've got for investment other than your pension fund. Especially relevant maybe if you're young, as I've talked about in the past, um, one of the downsides of a pension is that you've got a long way until you can access it if you're in your 20s or 30s or even 40s. So um, I'll talk through some of the other options you've got and some other things to keep in mind when you're trying to um, have a tax effective portfolio. The other question I've got uh, coming through was um, an email, um, and that email was uh, asking about buy-to-let property. So Scott has sent through um, a little bit of info about his circumstances. He's got some spare cash. He already invests in in some diversified portfolios, uh, and he's heard me say on the podcast before that I'm really not a fan of buy-to-let property. So he's asked me to expand on that a little bit. So that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk through why. Uh, I don't like buy-to-let properties, and also I do like buy-to-let properties. Now, um, you know, I'm, I'm broadly, uh, I guess, skewing towards negative on them from an investment perspective, but I do recognize that there are definitely some benefits to investing in bricks and mortar. So those are the two things I'm going to talk about today. But like I say, if you do have a question of your own, please do drop a uh, voice message to me in your podcast app. So like I say, my first question has come through from Noel. So let's have a listen to Noel's question and then we can go through the details of it afterwards. Hi, Jason. Uh, Noel here. Um, Big fan of the show. Uh, Just to give you my personal situation. So I'm 50 years old, father of three children. Um, I'm a 45% rate taxpayer. My wife is 20% taxpayer. Um, I've about to breach my lifetime's financial allowance, which is a lucky situation to be in, I appreciate. But I'm wondering where next um, in terms of uh, retirement pl- opportunities. Um, my, between my wife and I, we've got one buy to let each. Um, and I've been looking at things like, um, you know, VCTs, EISs, but I'm put off a little by the uh, high fees and the 
poor performance and high risk of many of those products. So I'd welcome your thoughts in terms of where to invest next after the lifetime allowance. So that's what I'm really loving about this podcast is that I get questions from every end of the spectrum. You know, some of the questions are coming in from students um, asking about um, the best ways to save money or invest in, in for the first time. And then we've got people on the other end of the spectrum like Noel, um, who is doing pretty well for himself. You know, he's a 45% taxpayer, so he's earning good money. He's hitting the lifetime allowance, which means he's got over a million pounds in his pension fund. So he's obviously had a, a long, successful career. So I think there's bits and pieces that everybody can take from from these various different questions, um, and there's quite a bit to go at with with this one. So thanks very much, Noel, for sending sending out through. I really really appreciate it. Um, it's a it's a good question because most people will get to this point. Um, um, at, at at some time in their retirement planning. And it might not be because you're at your lifetime allowance limit. It might be because you're at your annual allowance limit. Um, you know, the, the it tends to be um, sort of built into the rules and regulations for a lot of the tax-free um, investments or tax-effective investments that we can use, or wrappers that we can use, is that there are limits as to how much you can put in them. Um, and that is, is by design. Um, and also, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I'm a big fan of diversification, as you will know if you're a regular listener, not just from an investment perspective, from an investment portfolio perspective, but also from the way that you structure your finances. Um, and the reason for that is just simply because when you're getting the money out, it's important to have plenty of options as well. So, you know, assuming that that Noel has has he's got he's got no more room left to put in his pension, he's um, said there that he started thinking about things like EISs, VCTs. He mentioned his wife's a 20% taxpayer, um, and he's looking at what options he might have for saving for his retirement. So the first thing that really jumps out at me there um, is the fact that Noel's married and his wife is a 20% taxpayer. And I think that's a really important point because one thing that um, I come across a lot of clients um, who kind of forget that from a financial point of view, they um, if they're married that money, the money is all kind of lumped into one. I mean, it's not necessarily depending on, you know, you speak to a family law solicitor and they'll tell you there's ins and outs. But, you know, basically your family finances effectively for the vast majority of people are considered together. Um, you know, for most people leading up to retirement, they will share the um, share the costs of running that household. And that not, might not be necessarily that you both partners put in the same amount of money, but maybe one partner stays home and uh, and does some work with the children or looks after the children and that's their contribution or, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, it's important to remember that when you're looking at how to structure your finances that you consider both people. So, you know, for a start, um, uh, Noel's wife is working. So she has some scope to potentially make pension contributions or an additional pension contributions um, into her own scheme. Now, there's nothing to stop them using savings from Noel's income to pay into a pension for his wife, for example. Um, so I don't know what sort of level she might have in her pension scheme, but that would be something to consider. Um, if you're in that situation, just remember, you have both of you that you can look at. Same for ICEs. You know, you both have this um, the same £20,000 annual ICE limit. So if you're looking for areas to put your money that's tax-free, you know, you need to remember that it's not just about you. It's not just about your um, limits as well. Um, the In relation to EISs and VCTs, if you're not aware of these, they are fairly complex, tax-effective um, investments, but they come with a lot of 
downsides. Um, things like ices are pretty. Um, there's not many downsides to invest in, investing in something like an ISA. VCTs and EISs, um, they can be tax effective. You get some upfront tax breaks and some ongoing ones as well. But there are a lot of conditions. You've got to hold them for a certain pa- uh, period of time. And they're very liquid. Um, they effectively invest in very small companies often, um, which means that you can't just trade them or sell them like you can with shares. So I'm usually pretty wary of those sorts of investments just because you need to... Um, you need to get to a certain point where you weigh up the benefit, the cost benefit versus paying a bit of tax by having money in, say, a general investment account or something, or getting you know um, some additional tax benefits. But what are you giving up for those tax benefits? Um, so you know, I think it's it's important to consider the tax effectiveness of your portfolio. It's important to look at wrappers that could help you minimise tax. But you've got to remember that that's not the only thing you should be looking at. Noel also mentioned fees on those sorts of structures as well, and the fees can be very, very high. Um, and if you're if you're uh, saving yourself a bit of tax, but the fees are significantly higher than what you would be paying with a, with a general investment account, and you are giving up a lot of liquidity, you really need to think hard about whether that is actually worthwhile to you. I think realistically, the important thing to note once you start to get to this point, if you're earning a lot of money or you've got a, a really large investment portfolio, I think realistically, you need to get away from the idea of um, avoiding tax altogether. You know, and it comes to a point where it's a good situation to be in, but you should be paying some tax. Um, there are always ways to avoid tax completely, but the you know realistically. If you want to maintain access to your cap, to your funds, if you want to have flexibility in how you can um, generate an income through retirement, if you want to just make um, sure that you can actually use your money, you are going to have to pay some tax. And I think this is probably one of those situations where it's about minimising things rather than avoiding them altogether. Um, general investment accounts are really overlooked. You know, a general investment account is just an investment account that doesn't have any special wrapper around it. It's fully taxable. But what you've got to keep in mind is that you do have a number of different allowances that will apply. So you don't just pay full income tax um, from from the get-go. You don't pay capital gains tax on every amount of capital gain that you make. So whilst a general investment account may not seem that uh, tax effective on the face of it, um, it's you know there, there are ways to structure your investment portfolio to take advantage of those allowances. So you know you've got your dividend allowance, which is um, two thousand pounds of dividends that you can have tax free. You've got your capital gains tax allowance as well. You've got your personal allowance. Um, so depending on your level of income, you know you can and and the amount of capital gain you make in a given year, you can. Um, you can structure things around these allowances. Um, and again, things like dividends are taxed at a lower rate than than income as well. So, you know, there's there's definitely ways to structure. I think it's one of the areas where a financial planner um, does provide a lot of value because one of the things that we look at is not just um, how to... Uh, how to try and reduce your tax once you've already earned your income, but also how to structure your investments, how to structure your income, how to structure your withdrawals, your 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 um, capital realization to try and make the most of all of those tax allowances that you've got. 
there are also ra other rappers out there. Um, there's different sorts of bonds um, is kind of the, the big one that comes to mind, onshore versus offshore bonds. Um, and again, those aren't so much about um, minimize, or sorry, reducing, getting rid of tax altogether, but they can be really good ways that you have more control as to when that tax liability happens and it gives you more option to try and minimize it. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess the main point is that, you know, I think it's 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 an important kind of space to get in in your own head is that you will get to a point where it's not necessarily about getting rid of tax. If you can find ways that you can pay tax at basic rate when you're a higher or an additional rate taxpayer, that's just as good of a win as avoiding the tax altogether or it's as good of a win as you can probably expect to get. The other really important point um, about all this is, is one that often gets forgotten because the... Uh, often the idea is to try and get as much um, in terms of investments, in terms of pensions as possible. Um, you know, a lot of people aim to just grow, 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 pump as much money as they can into investments, maximize the pension contributions, use their ISA each year, which is fine. But I think it's really important to keep an eye on what is the end objective with those savings and with those investments. Because you know, it may be that Noel's actually at a point where he has got enough money in his investments, his pensions, his ISAs, his things like that, to actually make him and his wife very comfortable for the rest of their life. You know, if he's if he's retirement age, he may have enough money to just um, pack it in and travel the world for the rest of his life. You're never going to know that until you, unless you do some proper cash flow analysis and, and cash flow projections. And that, that is really, really important um, because otherwise you might find that you're you know putting all this effort into additional um, work or tying yourself in knots about the types of investments um, that you're looking at when actually you've already got enough. Now, the question at that point, if you work out that you do have enough, you've got plenty for what you need for the rest of your life, I guess you've got a couple of different um uh, a couple of different avenues you could take. Number one, you can just not care about the tax. You can just pay whatever tax you end up paying because um, it doesn't matter because you've got enough money for yourself. Or I would say most people probably wouldn't fall in basket number one. Basket number two, you can start thinking about things like gifting. Um, you know, generally speaking, if you've done quite well for yourself financially, a big concern in later life is going to be inheritance tax. And actually, the earlier that you start looking at inheritance tax planning, the easier that, that planning is. Um, and if you get to a point where you're in your 60s or 70s um, or whatever age really, and you've, you've done that cash flow planning, you've built in some um, additional buffers, you've, you've made some, some considerations for things like care costs, and you've got plenty of money, you really can start thinking um, about your IHT strategy. And the reason why that, that is uh, an important thing to do is because um, any, you know, anytime you gift any funds, um, again, there's some, there's some exceptions, but broadly speaking, anytime you gift any funds, it starts a seven-year clock ticking. And if you survive longer than seven years, that money is completely outside of your estate. Your kids um, won't have to pay any inheritance tax on it. If you, if you pass away within that seven-year period, then there is potentially going to be inheritance tax to pay. So um, that's why if you can afford it, the earlier you start gifting, the better. Because um, it starts at seven-year clock. If you make a gift when you're 65, the chances are really pretty good. The statistics say that the likelihood is you, you will live till um, past 72. If you're gifting at age 80, um, the statistics are that you're less likely to live until 
seven years to 87. So um, that becomes a really important part. And that's why for me, kind of regardless of, of what stage of life you're at, that cash flow planning is really important. And if you listen to pre- previous episodes of the podcast, you'll know I bang on about it all the time. But it's because without it, you are flying blind with a lot of these decisions. Um, and regardless of whether you're looking at your gifting strategy, you're looking at planning for retirement, saving for retirement, or you're looking at buying your first house, you need to have that information. You need to have that data to be able to inform the decisions that you're making with your money. And one last thing to make a note on the gifting strategy, because one uh, common objection I get from people when when they are considering gifting is that they want they want to make plans for inheritance tax. Um, they they plan to give the money to the children. The children are going to get it at some point, but they don't just want to hand over a big wad of cash to the kids to do with whatever they want to do with. And that could be for loads of reasons. It could be because the kids are still quite young. Um, it could be because they'd rather just help out the grandkids directly. It could be because they um, just prefer to, to manage the money because um, they think they'll do a better job at managing that money um, than their children would. So there are still lots of options around that. So this is where um, things like trust planning can really come to the fore. You know, there's a lot of ways that um, clients and people can gift into a trust to the benefit of the children or to the benefit of their grandchildren, but retain control of that money. Now, they can't get the money back in most circumstances. It is still a gift, but it means that they can they can stay in place as trustees of their trust. They can still have... Um, they can still have a say over the uh, in investment decisions of that trust. They can make distributions to the beneficiaries if they want. So if they would like to pay school fees for the grandkids or help the kids with a house deposit or whatever, you have that flexibility. But it allows them to feel like they're not just giving the money away and then the kids can run off and do with whatever they want to do with it. So there are lots of different options. And again, this is this is an area where someone like myself, financial planner, um, can provide a lot of additional um, benefit other than just let's look at your investment portfolio. So thanks very much again, Noel, for that question. Um, it was a really good one. Again, if anyone else has a question they would like to send through, just drop me down a voice memo and I'll answer it on the podcast. The next question I've got is from Scott in Glasgow. So first thing I'm going to make a note of there, Scott, is that the rules, which I find very weird as an Australian, but the the rules are uh, different for quite a lot of things in Scotland than they are in England. So... um, if I, as I'm speaking here, I'm, I'm a licensed financial advisor. I work in England, so that's the rules I'm going to be talking about. So if any, I don't know what, I don't know if there's anything that will actually cross over that would be different. But if there's anything that slips out that sounds wrong to you, it could be. Uh, so definitely check with the Scottish regulations. But Scott's question is, um, as I said, he sent me through an email on one. So this is this is the, I won't read the whole thing, but this is a, um, an excerpt from Scott's email. On one or two episodes, you touch on why you think buy-to-let investment is not a very attractive option. Could you discuss this in more detail in a future episode? Why do you consider this to be an unwise and difficult slash problematic investment? So it's a really good question because it's one that comes up all the time. Um, We've all watched episodes of Location, Location, Location or um, what's that other one? The I can't even remember what it's called. There's lots of, of TV shows that talk about property development, um, buy-to-let properties. There's lots of, um, I don't want to use a derogatory phrase, but there is lots of online um, 
courses and YouTube channels and um, content out there that is um, f about people saying how you can get rich from property and that sort of thing. Um, so it, it's very much in the media. It's very much in the in the in the in the public domain. I think one of the reasons for that is because it is pretty straightforward to understand. You know, we all live in a house or a flat or an apartment. Um, we all, uh, the vast majority of us will be either paying rent so we can kind of understand where the, where the return would come from for the landlord or we own our own house. So, you know, we're paying a, a mortgage to the bank or and we've maybe seen the value go up and that sort of thing. So it is a very um, straightforward and easy investment to understand. It's comforting. To know that if you're um, if you're so inclined, you can go and drive past your your property, uh, see that it's still there, seeing that the tenants are taking care of it. So, I'm going to talk through first the reasons why I don't like buy-to-let properties as an investment, and then I'll talk through some of the reasons why I do like them because I think it's important to keep it as balanced as possible. Um, but broadly, I'm not a fan of them purely because I think that there are other better options out there. Okay, so the first issue that I have with property as an investment by let property is is one of the biggest ones, and that 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 is that it's illiquid. Um, so when we, when we talk about investments, we talk about liquidity, which is basically how quickly can you get your hands on the cash. Money in the bank is one hundred percent liquid because you can go into the bank tomorrow and, and get it all out if you wanted to. Um, a um, uh, a house, a flat, a property is not liquid um, if. I had no other assets except for a buy-to-let property that was worth £100,000 and I my car blew up and I needed £20,000 for a new car, it could take months for me to get my hands on that £20,000. It isn't a straightforward process where somebody will just buy the house and give you the money the next day or the next week. You know, you have to go through a full process of listing it, finding an agent, putting it online, doing showings. The person then makes an offer. The offer then falls through. You make a, someone makes another offer. They need to go for finance. It can take a really, really long time. And for anybody who's been through the process before, you'll understand that it's not straightforward. So illiquidity is a really big problem, and it's a big problem for that reason. That you, if you need money, it takes a long time. The other reason why it's a big problem is because, um, what would the terminology be? It's the same sort of issue, but you can't sell off part of a property. You know, if I have a share portfolio that's worth a hundred thousand pounds and a property that's worth a hundred thousand pounds, and I need ten grand, I need to sell that whole house, that whole flat. Um, I can't just sell off a bathroom or sell the roof off. Um, Yes, you could potentially sell a portion to somebody or do some sort of shared ownership or something, but it's not straightforward. It's not a common thing. You need to sell the whole property to realize your cash, to realize your capital. With an investment portfolio, a share portfolio, you sell. You need 10 grand, you sell 10 grand, the remaining 90 stays invested. It's a lot more flexible when you're needing to access your your money for either living costs or for, I don't know, you know, buying buying car, making gifts, whatever. Anything you want to do that needs cash, it's going to take a lot lot more time. It's going to be a lot more hassle when it comes to property. The other issue that I have with it is it's, to be fair, it's probably not in the, it's not um, purely related to, to property as such, but I think the problem is worse with property. And that is that when most people are interested in investing in properties is when they are the worst value. You know, often what you will see is you will see um, 
news and is actually happening at the moment. There is an article that I was just reading before that was saying UK prices, house prices um, have gone up 10%. I don't know over what period that is. I would imagine the last um, the last 12 months. So house prices are up significantly. And what tends to happen is we see articles like this popping up. We see it on BBC News. We see it on, on ITV. We see it on um, you know the Guardian website, whatever. We start to see it more and more that property is going up. And property tends to go through these kind of boom cycles where it will stay pretty flat for a number of years. And then you'll get a few years where it absolutely go, it skyrockets, goes through the roof, and then it'll be flat again. You don't tend to have the big falls and big rises necessarily like you have with the share market. You just get long, uh, long flat spots followed by large growth periods. And so what tends to happen is people are most excited and you get most people pouring in to buy to their properties, especially cheaper ones like student accommodation, things like that, when the market is at its most um, overvalued. And so actually for a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people end up underwater with properties where they've borrowed money, they've they've bought not just one, but they've lever- leveraged themselves up, bought two, three, four, five properties. And actually for a long time, they're not making any money on, on that investment. So um, that I see that all the time. And I think it's a really common issue with property. Um, there's also high fees and high transaction costs for properties. Now, these again are a bit hidden. You know, if you've got an investment portfolio, you see it on your statement, your fee is X percent of your balance. Dead easy, nice and simple, right there in black and white. The downside is that it makes it more obvious what fee you're paying. With property, it's not presented in the same way. You know, if you have a uh, property uh, manager um, looking after that property for you, um, you know, they don't give you their fees as a percentage of your investment. They tell you however much per month that they've charged you, but it's not presented in a way that you can compare to an investment portfolio. Um, there's also often additional costs throughout the year that you need to track yourself. So um, if the plumber needs to come out, if you need a new boiler, if the driveway needs redoing, if there's an emergency call out because the electricity has gone off, all those things are effectively like fees for your investment. They're all things that dig into your return. Um, and you know you may be keeping a spreadsheet of your own, but if you're not, or even if you are, it just can be really hard to see what those fees are as a transaction, as a as a percentage. And actually, from my experience, they can be really quite high, um, especially comparing it to like index funds, things like that. The other one is transaction costs. You know, it costs a bloody fortune to sell a house. You know, you've got to pay a real estate agent a lot of money to sell that property for you. So, um, you know, when the time does, you know, it's a, a real hot button issue. Not a hot button issue, but it used to be a hot button issue for in the financial planning investment world about exit fees. You know, exit fees. You know, how wrong are exit fees? It's, it's ridiculous. And actually, they've been they've been banned now. You can't charge exit fees anymore. Um, but that's effectively what you do have with a property. Now, it's not an exit fee because you know it is a transaction cost, but those transaction costs can be tens of thousands of pounds, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> um, and they're also it's all the third reason is it's also really tax efficient. You know, you've got stamp duty, um, which is which is uh, again can be thousands and thousands of pounds. You do potentially take pay stamp duty on other investments as well, but it's worse with um, property because you pay um, you pay it on any leveraged amount as well. So you you know you pay a lot of tax on the way in. Um, you pay a lot of tax ongoing as well. You know you can't uh, you don't have a dividend allowance like you do for shares, so you pay tax on all of the income. Um, you only get basic rate tax relief um, on, on any of the costs. So if you're a higher additional rate taxpayer, you don't get that additional tax relief. Um, 
And when the time comes to sell, you pay an eight percent surcharge on the gain you make. So if you make, um, you know, if you make a hundred grand with in profit on a house, you'll pay, you know, just using, um, just using saying if you're a basic rate taxpayer, you pay uh, ten thousand pounds in tax um, on a share portfolio. If you made that same hundred thousand pound profit with a with a property, you pay eighteen thousand pounds in tax. So you know the property has to really outperform other forms of investment to be a net even after you've realised your gains. Um, so there's a lot of financial reasons why I really don't like it. Uh, and then the, the last reason is more of a soft reason, which is problems with tenants. Um, and this can become a cost issue as well if they're doing damage or not maintaining the property pro- properly. Um, but it's a massive hustle, like it just is. Even good tenants, even the best tenants, don't care for the property like you care for your own place. Um, you know, they're not going to maintain the gardens in the same way. Um they're not going to necessarily worry about bumping into walls and stuff as much as, as you might. Um, it's just not going to be looked after as well. And that's not disparaging to people who are renting. Um, it's just it's just that you're, if you have a buy-to-let property, you have to worry about looking after your own property, but you also then have to worry about looking after other properties as well. And you can get lucky. You can have absolutely amazing tenants, but you can also get absolute pains in the backside tenants that are just awful that that damage the place um, and make life really really difficult if they're late with rent and stuff like that so that can be something doesn't happen to everyone but that can be another issue that you can come across so i've slagged off buy to let property a lot there let's talk about the positives so for me the number one biggest positive with property is the access to leverage and what i mean by that is that if you had a £100,000 in cash and you went to the bank and you said, I would like to invest in a share portfolio, will you lend me money? You will struggle. There are marginal lenders out there who will do it, but you're probably only going to be able to borrow um, you know, maybe 100000 maybe slightly more on top of that. So um, of your £100,000 cash, you um, are only going to have you, you could potentially have a portfolio that includes leverage of maybe 200 grand. And again, they're completely random numbers off the top of my head. That might be that might be quite quite wrong um, as to what's out in the market at the moment. I don't do marginal lending much uh, at all myself. Um, and the interest rate is going to be quite high on that because it's viewed as very high risk lending from the bank. Um, property, on the other hand, if you've got a hundred thousand pound deposit and you've got income to support it, income from the the rent of the property, that sort of thing, you know you could borrow a significantly higher amount. You know maybe four or five hundred thousand pounds you could borrow on top of that. So what that means is that you're going to get the growth on your hundred thousand, but you're also going to get the growth on the leveraged amount as well. So um, you know if you've got if you get a ten percent return and you just invested your own one hundred thousand pounds, you would get ten thousand pounds in return that year. If you had still got that 10,000 pounds, but you have additional leverage, so your full investment is 500,000 pounds, with that same 10% return, you've made 50,000 pounds. Now, you will pay some interest, obviously, so some of that return is going to come off, but even after you've paid interest on your on your loan, you know maybe you're going to net 30 or 40,000 pounds. So it means that you have the benefit of leverage, you've got the benefit of using other people's money to grow your own wealth. Now, that comes with additional risks. Obviously, if you're putting um, other people's money up, then you have the risk to lose more, just like you have the risk to gain more. So it's not all all perfect. Um, but 
that to me is the number one benefit of, of property and also because it's secured against property banks like property the interest rates are generally going to be a lot lower than you'd get in a margin loan as well so for me that is the biggest um, benefit is is uh, is the ability to ratchet up your returns potentially through leverage but also gives you the potential to ratchet up your losses as well and the second one is again a little bit of a soft one but for me it's political what I call political will and all I mean by that is that there are a huge amount of vested interests in keeping the property market afloat and you know there are in the stock market as well but I think it's just I do think it's more pronounced in in property I don't really know why I don't have any hard facts or, or figures for that I just I just um, I, I feel like there is uh, if you look at the level of property ownership in the government, in the opposition, and just in the in the House of Commons and the House of Lords combined, it is substantial. Uh, and I think that broadly speaking, there is a um, you know there's a lot of political capital there to to want to protect the property market and to avoid kind of massive large crashes uh, and things like that. The last point I want to make on property is one that I've not put as a pro or a con um, because because I don't. I don't think it is, and I have I have covered this before, but it's the idea of volatility, because often one of the things that I hear is that our oh, property is a better investment than shares because property doesn't go down in value, and I don't think that's true. Um, I've said that just before. I said that property stays flat for kind of longer periods of time rather than really dropping, and really the main reason for that is people don't sell when property is down, not as much anyway, um, because what you find is that if people um, make a poor investment or have an investment in property that doesn't go so well and they've not made money on it, most people or a lot of people will tend to hold on to those properties for longer. Whereas with shares, people buy and sell and trade out of shares, shares much, much um, more often and much more quickly because it is easier to do that. The other um, kind of follow-on point from that is because they're traded more frequently, shares are valued more frequently. So they can appear a lot more volatile uh, than property purely because they are traded more. And if you think about so what I'm trying to say by that is um, I always use Tesco shares for some reason, but let's say you've got some Tesco shares. You know, Tesco shares are valued every second of every trading day, um, depending on what news has come out about um, the economy in general, if there's a, a negative tweet that Tesco have made, if they've come out with a new announcement of a, a new sponsorship deal. You know, there's little bits and pieces of, of news and information that can move the needle on te- Tesco shares all the time. And it moves the needle because those shares are bought and sold all the time. So, you know, I might say I might have some Tesco shares that I've got I've got, um, and I am thinking of selling them. I, you know, I've done all right with them. I'm looking for a time to get out. Tesco then come out and say they've become, um, you know, the exclusive stockist of McDonald's quarter pounders in store. Um that's going to get people pretty excited. Social media is going to go going to go pretty hard on that, and that's probably going to make the the um, the, the increase of the demand for Tesco shares. That'll make the price go up. I might look at it and think, "Ooh, actually, this is a good time to sell my my Tesco shares." So I'm going to sell mine, and that means they're getting valued at that exact time. There's an actual transaction that's happened that has said, "Person A is prepared to pay Person B X amount for this asset," which means this asset is worth X. So it's valued all the time and volatility is taken into an account into account all the time compare that to your property or a buy to let property and they are very they are valued very very infrequently you know um, 
properties generally only get sold every few years at the most and it's not uncommon for a certain property to be held for decades um but you know if you think about if we had a comparison you know imagine if somebody was out the front of that property valuing it every single day and i have used this example on a previous episode of the pod but they would adjust their valuation based on loads of different factors and loads of different stuff that they're seeing around them um you know maybe uh, maybe they get there in the morning and there's a dog barking loads next door. Well, that's not going to be good for property values because you know nobody wants to be woken up in the morning by a barking dog. So that would drop it. That that would drop their valuation a little bit. Um, you know, perhaps next door neighbours is having a party. You know, that is going to mean that that's not going to be uh, positive for the for the property values either. Um, the next day, maybe they come back and the owner or the tenant has mowed the lawn done some work in the garden, had a nice weekend in the sun and sorted it out a bit, that's going to bump the property prices up a little bit. Maybe the next day there's a flash car parked in the driveway. Mm, That must be a good neighbourhood. That's going to bump the prices up a little bit. So all of these touch points that you would get would adjust the valuation. But just purely from a practicality perspective, that's not how we value property. So it means that property is valued in 2007, and then it's not really valued until it's sold again in 2016. You can imagine if you pick pretty much any share that's still in existence um, from a six, seven, eight year period, the vast majority of them are going to look like they've got not had any volatility either. You know, they're going to look like that just all it did was go up between those two periods. So um, that, I guess, is it in a nutshell, really. So those are the things I don't like about property. There's a couple of things there I do like about property. For me, I just feel like investment portfolios have a much more inbuilt flexibility. They're much more tax efficient. Now, just to make sure I cover off the elephant in the room, um, I'm a financial planner, so I provide advice on investment portfolios. So you would hope that I would have a um, have a, a bias towards them. Um, but, you know, it's a bias for a real reason. I've got lots of clients who have buy to let properties. I work with them on them. I, we talk through the issues. We still uh, look to manage the tax position for them. Um, but that is my thoughts on the matter. If you disagree, I'd really like to hear. You know, feel free to drop me a voice note, drop me an, an email. Um, that's jason at jasonmountford.com uh, and let me know your thoughts. I would love to hear from you guys um, and, uh, yeah, hear what you have to say. So that's the episode for today, guys. I really uh, appreciate you listening in. I know it's been a little bit uh, of time between episodes. One thing I have been thinking about that I do need to do is get some guests on. So um, I would love to hear about the kind of people that you would like to see on this podcast, if at all. If you don't want guests, if you just prefer this kind of conversation where I'm, I'm kind of just giving you my thoughts um, on things and let me know that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, it'd be great to get some input from my listeners to see whether that is something that you would be interested in. But in the meantime, guys, look, I really do appreciate you listening um, to the podcast. Um, if you have your questions, like I say, I think I've said about 17 times so far, um, but that's because I'm really keen to get those voice messages coming in. Um, I think that adds a lot to the podcast to be able to have some other voices on there. So please let me know your questions. I really look forward to uh, hearing from you. And thanks again very much for listening.
Hi guys, I just wanted to jump in really quickly to let you know about my free weekly newsletter, also called The Hedge. Every week I comb through all the social feeds and news websites to cut through the noise and bring you the latest news and ideas in investing, business, entrepreneurship and personal development. As with all content from The Hedge, the aim is to help you grow your wealth in a way that allows you to be your real, authentic self. If you'd like to sign up, you can find the link as well as the links to all our other content at thehedge.io.